0: Welcome to our second conference call of 2022. Thank you for joining us. We're glad to have you participating this morning. And our goal for the call today is to address some of the questions we are most frequently hearing from our clients. There's certainly no shortage of topics to cover given what we've been seeing in the economy, in the financial markets. Uh, with geopolitical events, with her own midterm elections here in the U.S. And so we'll try to cover as much ground as we can today uh, during the time we have together. I want to give a, a shout out to those of you who uh, submitted questions ahead of time. We really appreciate your contributions and uh, hope to uh, answer your questions, give you the information you're looking for. Uh, the format for our call today is going to be a, a QA, and a a question and answer uh, format. I am going to be serving as the moderator or the facilitator of the conversation. You might notice if you're a regular attendee that I am not John Bird, who usually uh, fills this role of moderator, but fear not. He is with us today as a panelist and I will take a moment to introduce the panel to you. In addition to John Bird, who's our CEO, we also have Jason Ware, our chief investment officer and Mike Kessler, our senior portfolio manager. And so without further ado, we'll get started and right into the meat of the call with the questions that you've submitted. As Joe shared with you, if you have a question that you'd like to submit during the call, if there's something that comes up that you're like, ooh, ooh, I really wanna ask this, please don't hesitate to put it in the Q&A chat um, if you're connected via Zoom on your computer. Um, If you have dialed in, again, that is star nine on your phone to raise your hand and we will do our best to uh, incorporate those calls into those questions into the discussion as they come up. So to get us started today, the first topic we're gonna have some questions around is the topic we've all been hearing about, reading about, probably experiencing this year. And by no shock to any of you on this call, I'm sure that topic is inflation. And so really the first question on inflation is what's happening with inflation in the US right now? And given what we saw recently with the consumer price index and just this morning with the producer price index for October, is inflation quote unquote over? And to get us started, I'm gonna pass the mic over to Jason to hear his thoughts on that inflation question and then we can certainly open it up to the rest of the panel.
1: Perfect. Thank you, Liz, and thank you everyone for joining. Um, So taking the first question of what is happening with inflation, I think simply stated over the past 18 months we've seen too much money chasing too few goods. That is the classic definition of inflation. In particular, uh, pandemic stimulus, mostly fiscal stimulus and a simultaneous decrease of supply in everything from autos to furniture to to semiconductors left the marketplace out of balance. Uh, We've seen a similar situation in the services economy that's unfolded as well. After we vaccinated the masses and life largely returned to normal, folks came back out in droves to restaurants, to airports, to hotels. Meanwhile, house prices rose in dramatic fashion, pushing up rents. Add to this a terrible war in the Ukraine this year that's pushed up commodities prices and made food shortages much worse. And it's been a real storm for inflationary pressures. Um, Is inflation over? Um, I think the short answer there is no. It's not over. The Fed's target is two percent, and most frameworks of sensible inflation number. um, and we're still running it six to eight percent depending on your chosen measure. So that's still far too high to call inflation over. Uh, CPI October CPI.
0: It seems that we're having some technical difficulties with Jason's connection, and hopefully we'll be able to resolve those, as I'm sure everyone, including myself, wants to hear what Jason has to say about inflation and a host of other topics. But in the meantime, uh, John or Mike, do either one of you want to share any thoughts on inflation? Oh, Jason, do we have you back?
1: What, why don't I see what's going on with my connection? If someone else wants to jump in, sorry,
0: Mike. I see yeah. you muted yourself.
2: Yeah, I can. Uh, I can pick up the ball and run with it. Um, I, I, you know, I think where Jason was going was, um, you know, is it is it fair or is it premature to say is inflation over? I mean, we all know what the last twelve to eighteen months have been like, and Jason did a good, you know, a really good job of sort of outlining the 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 drivers of that, Um, our view at Albion is that it is premature to declare inflation over. um, But the sort of the real time signals that we're starting to get are encouraging. Um, Liz, you mentioned the, the CPI print that we got last week that, you know, we were glad to see i'm sure the fed was glad to see the market was very clearly glad to see it the nasdaq was up seven percent that day uh and then then that was followed this morning by uh, producer price inflation print for the month of october that also came in below expectations and it's been albion's view and you know jason has uh said this on many a tv segment over the course of this year uh, it's been our view for a while that a lot of what caused these inflation pressures in the first place Were factors that were going to kind of gradually resolve themselves, uh, you know, to some extent on their own supply chain. Uh, challenges that kind of you know snarled up the global economy um, and you know kind of a gradual sort of restoration of equilibrium around some of that stuff um, and then on top of that obviously we 've had a really aggressive monetary response from from the fed so it shouldn 't surprise us that um, inflation pressures at this point are at least directionally um, it feels like moderating in a way that 's pretty encouraging that being said, um, no inflation isn 't over we still have a labor market in the u s that 's you know, decently out of balance, um, which is putting upward pressure on, on wages to a degree that's, that's probably greater than, than you know, the, than we and the Fed would like to see. So there's still work to be done. But I, I think directionally, certainly the signals that we're getting at the moment are pretty encouraging.
3: And, and if I may just share a couple of comments to add to what Mike and Jason have said, it's going to be lumpy. It's not going to be a smooth trend line as inflation changes course. We have a war in Ukraine that's awful and does have a big impact on commodities prices as well as the energy sector. We are effectively restructuring our global energy um, supply chains in light of Russia's action. And that's going to be lumpy and it's, it's going to cause uh, challenges as we go forward. However, the trend, as Mike and Jason have both pointed out, are both in the right direction. China has been a significant contributor to supply chain bottlenecks because of their zero COVID policy. What we're seeing now is uh, Chairman Xi pivoting without saying he's pivoting because his credibility depends on consistency and yet under the surface the changes are happening and China is recognizing, particularly looking around the world and seeing that other countries have opened up and and it's actually working quite well. Uh, I think he is seeing that and recognizing, well, we better open up to and get more consistent in our supply chain capacity uh, without actually saying we're doing it. Uh, and, And those are the steps we're seeing China take right now. So while it will be lumpy, certainly the trends that we're seeing in inflation are all in the correct direction.
2: Yeah, and I'll, if I can just maybe jump in with one final thought, because this is a, a, a question that we get, um, you know, pretty, pretty often over the last 12 to 18 months from clients, which is basically, are we at the start of the 1970s all over again? And is this, you know, what we've experienced over the last 12 months, is this going to last 10 years before the problem is solved? And our answer to that question pretty consistently has been no, we don't think we're at the start of a decade long period of you know, high single digit or low double digit inflation, really for two reasons. One, most of the factors that gave us you know a long period of low inflation, uh, multi-decade period of low inflation are still in place. I mean, when you, when you think about like, well, why did we have low inflation for so long between the early eighties and a couple of years ago, it was really a combination of demographics which have slowed economic growth, especially in developed markets, Um, technology that has made it easier and easier to, you know, compare prices, Um, you know, the the Amazons of the world that have driven um, the price of just about everything lower. Um, And then also globalization and, you know, the ability of of companies to, you know, find the lowest cost location for, you know, producing goods. Um, That last one, I think it's fair to say, does look a little different on, you know, the other side of the pandemic. And now the war in Ukraine, there's a little bit more um, focus on, you know, supply chain redundancy, some re-onshoring, you know, security, national security considerations in certain industries like semiconductors. So I think our view, and I see that Jason's back on, um, our view is that we, you know, we're certainly not at the start of a decade of high inflation, but it's probably also fair to assume that inflation as it comes down, isn't going to settle back into that like sub 2% um, you know, level that we that we had for so long, where the Fed couldn't even get it up to their two percent target if they tried. Um, it, it seems likely to us, and, and it's certainly reflected in asset prices, um, that the equilibrium level of inflation going forward is maybe like two percent plus rather than two percent minus uh, over the longer term.
0: Thanks, Mike and John, and and welcome back, Jason. Um, on the top of, of a topic of inflation, another question that we hear often is, what are good investments in an inflationary environment? And certainly, I think the big one that we've all heard a lot about are I-bonds I this year, um, but there are certainly others. And um, Jason, I want to give you an opportunity to chime in here if you um, have thoughts to share on good investments in an inflationary environment. Or not <laughs> um,
2: well I can uh, I can pick up the ball again as, as Jason continues to work through his uh, technological difficulties I mean you know if you look at long-run history um, the, the the best way to beat inflation is to own investments where the cash flows over time can adjust and so I bonds are a good example of that in that the 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 month or the the semi-annual coupons that they pay are explicitly adjusted for inflation. Um, But there are other assets asset classes where cash flows adjust over time in response to inflation pressures. Um, Real estate is one. And guess what? Stocks are one um, because, you know, stocks are, as we all know, ownership interests in companies. Companies are collections of real assets. And over time, their revenues and ultimately their earnings will um, adjust to a new inflationary environment. I mean, you know, most companies, certainly, you know, all of the companies um, that Albion owns on behalf of clients have been pretty successful, honestly, this year in pushing through price increases um, as they've faced higher uh, input costs. And so over the long term, and, and I know that the, you know, the, the market uh, outcome that we've experienced this year um, doesn't necessarily indicate this, but over the long term, um, stocks have an excellent track record of producing returns well in excess of inflation, because the cash flows of the underlying businesses ultimately adjust. So um, those are just examples off the top of my head, but you know conceptually, what you want is a is a is an asset class where cash flows can adjust over time.
3: There a couple of observations there, and and Mike, I completely agree that the best inflation hedge over time are companies that can raise their prices equal to or greater than the rate of inflation. And that is equities. The other thing you just mentioned is I bonds. Now, to be clear, those are difficult to purchase in any quantity. Consumers are limited to $10,000 a year per person. If they choose to own those securities and it has to go directly through the treasury in order to do so. So they're, they're, they're very attractive. However, accessing them is difficult due to the limitation. There are also limitations and uh, interest penalties should one decide that hmm, inflation's ending and I no longer want to own this investment. So while it sounds like a wonderful panacea, it's, it has its challenges as every investment does. But overall, I'm very much in agreement with Mike that the best inflation hedge is companies with durable businesses that can raise prices in excess of the rate of equal to, or in excess of the rate of inflation.
0: Thanks, Mike and John. Um, Moving on from inflation, we can't really talk about inflation without also talking about interest rates and what's happening with the interest rate environment. Um, And one of the questions that comes up often is really What is the Fed looking to? What are those data points or those variables that the Fed's looking to that would make them want to um, ease their foot off the brake of the economy, so to speak?
2: Well, I'll keep jumping in. And uh, at some point, hopefully, Jason um, is able to join us again. But yeah, I mean, obviously, that's been kind of the driver this year in terms of what has happened with asset prices, or, or, or maybe it's been the transmission mechanism from what's going on with inflation to what has happened to prices in the stock and bond market. It's been what the Fed has been doing. So I guess, Liz, to you know, answer the question of what are they looking at, they're... In a sense, they're looking at the same two things that they always look at. The Fed has a dual mandate, which is price stability and full employment. And so, what that means is, you know, price stability they define as inflation that averages around two percent over time, um, and full employment basically means, you know, that for the most part, people that want uh, want to be gainfully employed are able to do so. I mean, we're never going to have zero percent unemployment, but they they want unemployment to be low, um, so that creates a strong economy. So you know, this year, especially if you go back to the beginning of this year, when you looked at those two pieces, we were basically at full employment. I mean, unemployment has been sub 4% basically all year, um, but inflation was way above their 2% target. And so when they look at both sides of their dual mandate and on the full employment side, they see, wow, we're not only at full employment, but if anything, we're, we're, you know, we probably have an overheated labor market and too many open jobs and not enough people to fill them. Meanwhile, on the inflation side, it's way, way above our target. Well, that's what we need to do something about to get back to a point where the the dual mandate is more in balance. And so they've been, as we all know, in very aggressive inflation fighting mode all year. They've raised rates. Um, We've had now four consecutive 75 basis point rate hikes over the last four meetings. We've gone from 0% overnight interest rates to 3.75% in the span of this year. Um, And that's all because the inflation side of their dual mandate has been the problem. Now, what are they going to look at going forward that will tell them, okay, maybe it's time to take their foot off the brake? Well, again, it's the same two things. They're going to look at the labor market. And you know, that, again, that'll be job openings. It'll be the unemployment rate. It'll be jobless claims to see if you know we're starting to see a little bit of softening there. And then they're going to pay close attention to inflation data. And that's why the market has reacted so positively to the CPI print that we got last week and then the PPI print that we got today, because the market knows that the Fed is looking at those things too. And so every time we get inflation data that is, you know, better than expected, then market participants interpret that as okay, maybe now the Fed can slow down a little bit. And in fact, that's very much what we expect at this point. I think the good news on this, you know, really significant adjustment in interest rates that we've had this year is that at this point we're much closer to the end of that process than the beginning. So, you know, I mentioned we've had four consecutive 75 basis point rate hikes. We actually expect the pace to slow to 50 basis points in December. And then maybe we get one or two more hikes early next year. And that's kind of what the market is expecting at this point. And then we get to what the Fed would call a neutral policy stance where they're not actively raising or lowering rates and and you know kind of letting letting it breathe a little bit to see you know the effect of everything that they've done so far filter through to the economy and see if inflation continues to come down so our our outlook because our outlook for inflation is that it's you know some of the in- inflationary pressures are moderating our outlook for interest rates is that the, the pace of rate hikes is, is also going to moderate, and we're probably pretty close now to the end of this hiking cycle, um, and then you know, probably a period where the Fed isn't actively um, raising rates as we get into the middle of next year.
3: So in the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? There are lifelines. By far, the most accurate lifeline is ask the audience. It has the best outcome, because that's a market. So if we take that same idea and we look at what the market is saying, the the millions of participants who are every day judging the Fed's actions, we can get a sense of what that crowd thinks of the Fed's actions by looking at the yield curve. And the yield curve is the interest rates over time. It's comparing the short-term interest rate of the Fed funds with the one-year treasury, with the five-year treasury, with the 10-year treasury. Right now, the short term interest rate a 2 year treasury is yielding about 4.34%. a 5 year is yielding 3.91%. the 10 years at 3.8%. that's an inverted yield curve. what that says is that the wisdom of the marketplace believes that the fed's efforts will be successful. they believe that it's worth that the fed will quell inf- inflation which will bring interest rates down there is no such thing as a perfect indicator of what markets will do. However, the wisdom of crowds tends to be better than the wisdom of the individual. And what that suggests is that the wisdom of crowds says, yes, the Fed's actions to bring down inflation over the next little while will be successful. It's not quite as exciting with the bells ringing and everything that you get on who wants to be a millionaire, but hey, we'll take what we can get when we're in the markets.
0: Thanks, Mike and John. Speaking of phone a friend, do we have Jason on the phone?
1: Jason is on the phone. I apologize everyone for the internet disruption on my end, but I am on the phone.
0: Well, your timing is perfect because the next question we're gonna talk about I think is right up your alley, which is um, what does the impact of higher interest rates have on U.S. government debt and the deficits we're running? You know, does that create challenges? Do we have any concerns around that?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. So, I mean, the way that we think about it is, is so long as growth rates are higher than borrowing costs, then, then, then public debt is said to be cheap and sustainable and manageable. And certainly governments piled it on over the past few years, in particular during the pandemic, where about $5 trillion in spending was doled out to keep the economy from sliding into the abyss. we definitely have a big debt load and in fact i think it was just reported at the end of the fiscal year that there's about 30 trillion in public debt outstanding now that's gross public debt that doesn't back out what the fed holds on their balance sheet which um you know number of economists would argue you should take that out of the calculation we would agree with that but nevertheless debt is high and we all know that and now we're at a point where as mike and john have spoken about i'm sure at length in my absence um, rates are going up, they're moving up significantly, which begs the question, can we afford the debt from this point? And the first thing to understand is that, you know much of the public debt we have is um, you know locked in at low rates for many more years to come. Uh, for the portion that isn't locked in, and by most estimates, that's around one third of Treasury's outstanding. Um, most reasonable analyses peg, uh, even with the current interest rate environment, uh, additional interest costs over the next decade being somewhere around a trillion versus the baseline scenario. Now, while that sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. There's no doubt about it. A trillion dollars in extra interest costs over the next 10 years you know, is a real line item, and it's something that we should be mindful of. But when you take a perspective and look through the lens of what the baseline scenario is under a low rate environment, it's only about 13 to 14% higher than those baseline forecasts, even though interest rates have spiked dramatically. So Our view is it's manageable. I think as long as we don't have any political brinksmanship like we saw in 2011, where um, politicians were fighting over raising debt ceilings and putting the uh, full faith and credit of the US government on the line for political gain and sound bites, as long as we can avoid those types of scenarios developing. Then our view is that the U.S. economy continues to progress, it continues to advance, it continues to grow, and that we will be able to service that debt. I think that speaks to potentially, you know, the good news of um, a lame duck session here before we get a new Congress next year, where it looks like a lot of the folks in Congress want to potentially raise the debt ceiling again, so we don't go down that path of fighting over debt ceilings and putting our uh, credit at risk, I think the reality is is that again the debt is manageable as long as the economy continues to grow, we should be fine, we have a dynamic economy, so we're not terribly worried about any imminent blow up in public debt despite the fact that the gross amount is quite high
2: yeah and i would I would add real quick to that that um... Even though rates have gone up a lot and and treasury yields have gone up a lot, and so the government's borrowing costs, to the extent that they have to refinance debt, has gone up. In absolute terms, they're still not all that high. I mean, we're talking about treasury yields at four percent. So the U.S. government is paying ballpark four percent to borrow money. By long-run historical standards, that's actually still, you know, average to low. Quite honestly, um, it's just it's been a, a really significant adjustment because yields got so low in the aftermath of the pandemic. But in in absolute terms, whether we're talking about treasury yields or or other bond yields, um, they're they're not high in an absolute sense relative to long run history.
1: I I would agree with that, Mike. I'm sorry.
0: Go ahead, Jason.
1: I was just going to say, I agree with that. And you can see that exact concept in the um, if you look at the uh, expense um, that the government pays on uh, their debt over the past couple of years, despite the fact that we've added to the debt, if you look at that um, line item in the uh, federal uh, outlays, it's not a whole lot higher than it was in the late 90s, despite the fact that we have a lot more uh, debt outstanding. And that's because of that low interest rate calculus that, that Mike noted. If you look at it relative to history, it's, it's still fairly benign. Um, so... Yeah, we're we're not we're not worried about it imminently.
3: And, and those of you who've been around for a little while, if you got back in your your retrospectoscope time machine and went back to when you were younger and looked at the interest rates that we are facing right now, you'd go, oh, yeah, these are pretty normal. It wasn't that long ago that these were good interest rates in terms of uh, being low interest rates. But we got we, we've had several years of effectively zero interest rates, which are pretty seductive. However, the economy did just fine with these interest rates years ago.
0: Historical context is very helpful. So thank you to all three of you for sharing thoughts on that. Keeping on the topic of interest rates, but pivoting it a little bit from US uh, government debt, and deficits. Um, Certainly as we've seen interest rates rise, we've seen bond yields rise or the interest we can earn on our bonds, uh, government bonds, corporate bonds, muni bonds, all of them. And certainly the way bonds work is as yields or interest uh, payments rise, uh, the prices go down. And that's kind of, that's created a challenging uh, year as for those, for all of us in the market, but for those of us who have fixed income allocations or part of their asset allocation involves bonds, and they've seen their stocks go down and they've also seen their price of bonds, the prices of their bonds go down and you know, the questions have been like, hey, I thought these bonds were supposed to provide stability or not be down as much as the stocks I own. And that's not happening this year. And what's going on there? And Mike, I'm wondering if you can add a little color or clarity for our listeners today on, on what we're seeing in the bond market and and why.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to Sugarcoat or, or pretend um, that it has been anything other than literally the worst year in the history of the United States investment grade bond market, because that's what it's been. Um, it's a consequence of you know, some of the things that we've talked about, the Fed raising rates really dramatically. You know, short-term interest rates were zero coming into the year. Now they're they're going to end the year at probably close to 5%. Um, and that's been reflected as, as John mentioned in treasury yields. Um, which in turn you know, is sort of what drives yields across the whole rest of, of fixed income. And I looked this morning, um, so year to date, the S&P 500 has delivered a total return of negative 15.8%. The U.S. Aggregate Bond Index, which is like the biggest um, index of U.S. investment grade bonds, is down 14.3%. So right, almost right in line, which, is, as Liz said, is not what we... Typically, would expect, and, and honestly, not typically what happens when um, when we have an equity market downturn. Often, it's the case that bonds are, you know, at worst kind of flattish, and 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 sometimes actually up and provide a nice a nice counterweight. But it's it's been an unusual year because of the circumstances. You know, we had all time low yields coming out of the pandemic, and then inflation and this really um, abrupt monetary policy response that pushed uh, yields up and and bond prices down. I think the good news is, well, there's two pieces of good news. One is, and as we, you know, as I I mentioned when we were talking about the Fed and interest rates, that we think most of the adjustment is behind us. Most of the downward adjustment um, in bond prices should also be behind us. And we've restored yield levels to the point where they can go up or down. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, when we were at all-time low yields, yields really could only go up. Now they're at sort of a normal level and they could... They could rise further they could fall um, depending on the outlook for inflation and the economy and all of that so they're back to a position where they can provide that portfolio diversification and the counterbalance if you will to an equity portfolio um, so the value of having fixed income in the context of an overall asset allocation i would i would argue is certainly much greater today than it was 18 months ago and it's back to sort of a normal Stance. The other piece of good news is that you know, provided that our assumptions about inflation are correct, and when I say our assumptions, I mean Albion, I mean the Fed, I mean the market. Um, everyone's kind of collective assumption is that we are going to experience moderating inflation, and that the longer-term outlook for inflation is in the two and a half to three percent range. Well, right now, Albion is building corporate bond portfolios that yield five and a quarter percent. So call it two and a half percent in excess of what we expect inflation to be over the next five to seven years we I mean we can build muni bond portfolios at three and a quarter percent so you're earning probably half a percent above inflation with no tax so that's the other piece of good news for a long time we were in this environment where net of inflation bonds yielded nothing, sometimes less than nothing net of inflation. And and I think going forward, because of where prices are now, we're earning a a reasonable real yield relative to the very low amount of risk that we're taking. And we're in a position where bonds can play that portfolio role. They can be a counterbalance to equities going forward in a way that unfortunately, because of the all-time low yields we had out of the pandemic, they just weren't able to do. Uh, And in fact, they were right in the crosshairs of the inflation fight this year.
3: It has been nice to see bonds actually start returning something. And as Mike, you, you highlighted, as rates come down, uh, we we do have a spread over inflation, which for the first thirty-five years of Albion's history we did. In the last five, it was far more difficult because of rates. Maybe, perhaps, it's possible that some of you on the call don't understand or aren't aware of or have better things to do with your life than understand the relationship between interest rates and bond prices. I'm going to give you a simple example to illustrate it. Let's suppose I lent you, you, or you lent me $100, and I'm going to pay you 5% interest. So I'm going to pay you $5, and it's just for a year. You get $105 back at the end of the year. Now, let's suppose it's a perpetual loan. So I agree to pay you $5 a year forever, and you give me $100. Well, let's suppose the going interest rate goes up to 10% from 5%. Well, now, if you want to get rid of that loan to John, you're only going to get $50 for it, because the buyer of that debt will say, I'm only getting $5 a year in a 10% interest rate environment. That makes it that piece of paper worth $50. So as interest rates go up, the value of a bond goes down. Now, the closer it is to maturity, if you get your money back in a year, the less that value goes down. So at the, as interest rates go up, that value goes down. Now, how does that impact stocks? Well, it impacts stocks because if you buy a stock, what are you buying? You're buying a future stream of earnings. And if you're willing to pay 20 times that future earnings stream, it's going to be worth a certain price. But if the competing asset, meaning bonds, are now offering you something where you get a, it's only trading at 10 times that coupon. So for a $10 interest payment, you get $100 a year. Instead of uh, for a $10 interest payment, it costs you, pardon me, $200 a year you're willing to pay less for that earnings stream. So there's a direct relationship between interest rates and stock prices because we're really valuing the future earnings of that stock in the context of of what we could put our money in otherwise. So short answer or the short summary of this uh, monologue that I hope at least three of you followed is that As interest rates rise, stock prices will go down because investors will look at the alternative of owning bonds versus stocks and say, hey, I can get this certain yield, whereas the earnings growth of the company is less certain. So that's in this case, as interest rates have risen, we have seen stocks and bonds decline together. In I'll say a more typical environment, but there's no such thing as a typical environment. If a market sell-off is caused by a recession, meaning a clear slowdown in business activity, well, if that happens, bonds become a safe haven. So money moves into bonds because interest rates actually remain pretty low. And so money moves into bonds. As interest rates go down, of course, bond prices go up. Whereas stocks, people say, well, their earnings are going to be less in the future. Therefore, I don't want to own them. So in that recession-driven scenario, you'll see stocks go down and bonds remain stable or go up. In this scenario, it's not recession-driven. It's inflation and interest rate driven, supply chain driven. So we're seeing the bonds go down at the same time as stocks, a little bit different. but the beautiful thing about markets is there's just an infinite number of varieties of ways that they can challenge you.
0: Thanks for breaking bond math down for us, John. That's yeah. good, we need that. I,
2: I, wasn't, I wasn't gonna go there, but I'm, John, I'm glad that you did.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. there's a visual well, layer. That's, layer.
3: That, that's a summary of this book, <laughs> sort of thick.
2: <laughs> I have one of those too, Fabozzi.
3: Yes.
0: For those of you who
3: don't have video, that was the handbook of fixed income securities and it's about two and a half inches thick.
0: And we just got the two minute summary, so thank you. So uh, we've talked a bit about, John, you mentioned the yield curve earlier being inverted and um, we've heard, I think many of us have heard that every time the yield curve has inverted in history that has signaled a recession to come in the future. I think it's 100% of the time if I'm not mistaken. And so another question that's come up a lot with inflation and interest rates is, are we in a recession? Are we heading towards a recession? And Jason, maybe you can talk to us a bit about Albion's outlook on that.
1: Yeah, happy to. Sure. So um, it is certainly the topic du jour, inflation and the potential for recession. And I'll start by not burying the lead. We are not currently, um, nor are we likely to enter one before, let's say, the end of this year. Um, despite two quarters of slightly negative GDP earlier this year, which many use as an unofficial description of uh, recession, the, the actual determination, um, the official um, arbiters of recession are a group of economists at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And how they define a recession, and I think we think this is largely accurate, is a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and lasts for a few months. And we quite frankly haven't seen this yet. Instead, what we've had is a jobs market that is strong. We've had incomes that have been durable. We've had consumer spending that has held up really well. And that's just not what a recession looks like. In the first half of this year, when we had Q1 and Q2 real GDP decline slightly, that was largely a function of net trade pushing against growth, as well as a bit of um, volatility in inventories at the business level, whether companies were adding to inventory or not adding to inventory. We added north of two and a half million jobs in the first six months of this year, and that would be absolutely outside of historical norms to see a recession when we're adding jobs at that kind of pace. So we're not in recession presently, but more important than that, and kind of where everyone obviously is turning their attention to is, will we go into recession, given the yield curve indicator that Liz mentioned and some other items? And I think the, the unfortunate reality is that our view is that we are likely to see recession sometime next year, even though we're not in one today and probably won't be in, in one by the end of the year. The reality is, is that, you know, looking across a variety of our preferred leading indicators, and we look at treasury yield curves, not only the twos and tens or the three month and 10 month, but we actually aggregate the yield curves in our, one of our indicators on our internal economic dashboard. And instead we look at all the points along the yield curve. And right now, north of 70% of the yield curve is inverted. And when you go back throughout history, going back 40, 50 years, in every instance, that has uh, implied a impending recession. Um, there are other things as well. Uh, we, you know, LEI, which is a leading economic index, which we're actually going to get an update on that um, later this week, has turned down pretty, uh, you know, pretty sharply. Consumer confidence is lower. Housing indicators like building permits and starts are lower. Um, so it appears that the Fed has likely already kind of oversteered the monetary policy at this point. And as Mike noted, they're likely to continue to raise rates by another 1% or so before they're done here. So we're going from 0% rates at the beginning of this year to 5% or maybe north of 5% inside of 12 months. And that's just an incredible amount of tightening. And, and it takes time for this to filter through and fully show up in the real economy. Um, you know, It's said that monetary policy operates with a lag. And that's, that's what's meant by that when you hear that phrase used. It doesn't immediately show up. We've seen it immediately show up in things like housing. Um, That's pretty much seized up over the last few months because, you know, 30 year mortgage has gone from 3% to close to 7%. Um, But that lag takes time uh, to filter through the economy. So, you know, our review has given that host of leading indicators that we think do a really good job of leading the business cycle and just the reality that the fed is going to have a very difficult time piloting a soft landing i mean history is not on their side given how much how aggressive they've pitched up monetary policy so you know our view is no recession right now probably won't see one in the next few months but there's a very good chance that we do see some type of recession whether it's mild or moderate um sometime in 2023
2: And uh, I'll just jump in real quick, Jason, it's probably also fair to say, because I know we've talked about this a lot, that a recession, at least a mild recession, may ultimately be necessary, and I know that's a weird thing to say, but to bring the labor market back into something closer to an equilibrium, and ultimately get services inflation, which at this point is kind of the more persistent driver, um, back to a level where inflation in the aggregate will be close to the Fed's target. I mean, with, you know, 3.7% unemployment, which is where we are right now, and 10 million unfilled jobs in this country and really low unemployment claims, there's just still too much steam in the labor market. And we probably need to see unemployment tick up into the 4%, maybe it's 5%. You know, I I don't think we need a deep recession and really high unemployment, but we probably need something like that to ultimately kind of get services and in, uh, inflation back down to where the Fed wants it to be?
3: I think it's essential to separate the likelihood of recession from what the markets are going to do. The market is an is a anticipatory mechanism. So if we have a recession, the market will be saying, all right, well, that's fine. What's going to be happening six, six to 12 months in the future? So you can have a recession, and at the time the recession announced is announced, the market can actually be generating positive returns and continue to do so through the recession as it's anticipating coming out the other end. So yes, recession is critical to understand, and the tie to the market is not, uh, the market does not directly react, and if you will, sell off while the recession is happening and go up after the recession is over. It will... It will move well in advance, both on the downside in anticipation of a recession, which we have seen some of that, as well as to the upside in anticipation of coming out the other side.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with Jason. I would agree with, with both statements um, and, and specifically, um, Mike, your comment about inflation. I think that's that's absolutely true. Um If if you look at the components that have driven inflation higher, um, you know, our view has been that moving from that 9% peak back in March down to maybe 4% or so was likely to occur on its own. Um, It's part of our normalization thesis that we have been talking about a lot this year, this, you know, slowing of demand on the backside of a big boom in the economy last year, supply chains starting to sort themselves out. Um, wages cooling a bit, getting back into line, even though we do have a, a labor market that's still far too tight. Um, but with or without the Fed, we were probably on track to go from 9% maybe to 4 but getting from 4% back to that 2% target that you noted, Mike, is going to be stickier and does likely require a true cooling of the labor market. Really, what the Fed would like to see is wage, nominal wages coming down. If, if Jerome Powell were to say the quiet thing out loud, it would be that they are attempting to... You know, move um, unemployment up a little bit because they, they would argue that they we need to see some uh, loosening in the labor market to see wages come off the boil there. So, and we're seeing that in some of their projections. You know, they're expecting unemployment to rise next year, which the Fed almost never says when when they when they're giving their forecast. So, I think the Fed recognizes, to Mike's point, that we do need to bring down uh, we we do need to bring restore some balance to the labor market if we're going to truly get inflation back to that that target that that, that we all would like to see.
0: Thank you all for um, your insights and information regarding recession. I'm sure we will continue to uh, answer that question over time as the data um, unfolds. I'm going to jump around a little bit now because I just want to make sure I get to the questions that have been submitted during our discussion this morning. Um, and so the, the next place I'm going to go is the midterm elections, and um, we've been asked, you know, what impact, if any, do we think that the midterm elections will have uh, on the financial markets and the economy, two separate things. And I'm actually going to pass that one off to John to get us started, if you will, um, and then certainly, as I'm, I'm sure you have thoughts to share, and then we can open it up to the rest of the panel.
3: Thanks, Liz, and I didn't say this at the beginning of the call, but also, Liz, thank you for assuming the role of moderator of this group. It's actually a treat to just be a panelist on this particular call. I'm I'm very much enjoying it, and and I'm enjoying being on the call with the rest of my peers as we have a lot of depth in this team that hopefully is coming through to you who are listening. Uh, Gridlock is actually a pretty good thing for financial markets. And what we will like, we have had pretty close to gridlock for uh, the last two years. And with a split Congress, which is what it's looking like will happen, gridlock will continue. So the the positive part about gridlock, where in this case, it looks like the, the Democrats will control the Senate by a vote, maybe two, and the Republicans will control the House by a handful of votes, is not much is going to happen. That implies predictability. And if you're running a company and you know that whether you like it or not, uh, the current rule structure is unlikely to change dramatically. That gives you predictability in running your business. So from a... we could go off on several tangents in terms of quality of life and social issues, or, you know, pick your particular um, most important issue and wring our hands about gridlock. However, if you're looking for predictability in government policy, gridlock is helpful. So I look at what we just saw in the midterms where we're likely to have a split Congress, which is likely going to create gridlock and as an investor it offers me predictability so i I think that the markets will view that favorably
1: so this is jason uh completely agree with that at the micro level john the, the notion of some stability in the regulatory framework and predictability as you're doing business planning all very important things um addressing it from more of the macro lens uh what gridlock uh means at least in in our view is that we should expect little in the way of major legislation getting passed over the next two years um specifically in that context we're referring to tax increases or pro-cyclical fiscal spending um given that split between the senate and the house and of course you know joe biden still is our president um that type of inertia is unlikely to produce anything out of washington that would um take the deficit back the other way and, and and just worth noting, the deficit has been coming down dramatically this year. It's still far too high, but it has been coming down. Um, And considering the inflationary environment that we're presently in, uh, which of course has taken up a lot of this call because it's so front and center, that's probably a good thing. Having um, a uh, pause on um, any kind of pro-fiscal spending over the next couple of years while inflation gets sorted out uh, is is likely what we need right now. So from the macro perspective, um, probably also a good thing as well. Yeah, I would, I would
2: argue it was probably, strictly through the lens of financial markets, it was probably very close to a best possible outcome kind of situation. And the one additional point I would add is that, and I don't want to get political here, but um, the, the fact that a number of the sort of more um, overt 2020 election denier candidates in various state houses um, were not elected probably also reduces the probability of a constitutional crisis in the 2024 presidential election, that's also a good thing for markets. So um, I think all across the board, again, just strictly through the lens of financial markets, it went about as well as it possibly could have gone.
0: Financial markets love stability and predictability Mm -hmm. and that's what they got. Okay, turning away from politics for a moment, I'm gonna go towards the housing market. And for many Americans, their home is the largest asset on their balance sheet. And certainly I think everybody's kind of tuned in here in Utah. Uh, and really nationwide, we've seen home prices skyrocket in the last two years or so. Um, and we get a lot of questions around, you know, what's our outlook on real estate, you know, on the national level, on the Utah level? You know, are mortgage rates going to keep going up? Certainly they're higher than they have been in a long time. Uh, We are not real estate experts, but of course, we have um, information to share and opinions to share. And so for that, I'm going to start off, Mike, if you want to jump in and share some thoughts on that.
2: Sure. And I'll I'll try to go quick because I know we're getting close to an hour here. Um, But I mean, I guess to cut right to the chase, home prices currently are falling and We know why. I mean, we had this dramatic run-up in prices coming out of the pandemic. So affordability was already stretched coming into the year. And then this year, mortgage rates nationally have gone from 3% to 7%. And so that has a very significant impact on what people can afford. Then you throw in maybe a softening economy and you get um, home price declines. Um, I think the, the question that we've been hearing recently is from folks that remember what happened in the mid-2000s leading up to 2008. And we had, you know, we had a slowdown in housing that turned into a foreclosure crisis that turned into a financial crisis. And suddenly we had a deep recession and a huge bear market. And are we gonna have to go through that whole thing again? And again, to kind of cut to the chase. Our answer to that question is no, we are not on the verge of a housing market driven financial crisis and, and deep recession for several reasons. One, I mean, underwriting standards on mortgages never went back to the pre-crisis shenanigans of liar loans and no income and these teaser rates and interest only all that garbage that got a lot of people into houses that they couldn't really afford. Those things never came back. And so underwriting standards between, you know, the end of the previous recession and now have been very solid. So, you know, today most people are in homes they can afford. A lot of people refinance their mortgages, you know, a couple of years ago when rates got really low. Um, incomes are strong, people have a lot of equity in their homes. I mean, even if home prices are off five or ten percent from wherever they peaked, maybe at the beginning of the year, that's on the back of a huge run-up in prices. So just the, the financial. Uh, characteristics of your typical homeowner are very different and much stronger today. So that's one reason. The second reason is from a sort of contagion standpoint, you know, those the CDOs that packaged all those dodgy mortgages back in the, you know, we all saw the big short, um, those never came back either. So um, A, those dodgy mortgages don't exist. B the derivatives that turned them into major financial, you know, weapons of mass destruction didn't come back. And also on the back of the, the, the recession we had in 0809, there was a ton of new regulation about, you know, bank capital and stress tests and just, just to make sure that that never happened again. So banks are much better capitalized. They have much more long-term funding as a, as a percentage of their, uh, of their capital structure. So there's just so much more sort of stability built into all of the, you know, the foundation of, you know, housing finance that we don't anticipate you know, any kind of contagion effect that would have real consequences for the financial system uh, or the economy, despite the fact that it's, it is true that we are in a period, I think now in Utah and nationally of declining home prices, that'll probably continue. I would think for some period of time, home prices are kind of sticky and don't adjust really as quickly as they probably should. So directionally, could we see home prices you know, continue to soften here into next year, especially if we do get a recession, as Jason talked about? Yes, probably. Is it going to turn into anything catastrophic or problematic for the broader economy? Probably not. And I would argue you know, longer term in terms of nationally and here in Utah, um, you know, once we get through this sort of adjustment and, and whatever is to come for the economy next year, um, you know, home prices are going to be just fine long term. You know, we have millennial cohort uh, household formation going on right now. It's a huge uh, kind of generational tailwind for the housing market. And then here in Utah, as we know, first of all, we live in a magnificently beautiful place, and we're somewhat constrained geographically. We've been butting up against the Wasatch forever, and now we're starting to butt up against the Ochre. So um, I think from a supply-demand standpoint, Utah was the fastest growing state in the, in the country in the last census. Um, land here in Utah is going to continue to increase in value over time, kind of regardless of what happens over the next, whatever, six, 12, 18 months.
0: Thanks, Mike. We do live in a beautiful state. And it seems that a lot of people want to live here with us. So uh, that's a good thing for our home values, for those of us who are homeowners. Um, We're coming up at the end of our hour. And, um, you know, we've heard about inflation, although trending lower, still being high, high interest rates, uh, recession probable recession early next year, but I really want to end on a positive note um, for the call today. And so the final question that I want to take a few minutes and have the panel answer is really about given all of sort of the uncertainty or the, or the, how taxing it can be mentally and even emotionally when we see markets um, down, uh, when we worry about what's gonna happen with the economy, uh, how, why should we continue to think and act long-term? Why should we stay invested in and um, stay in the game, so to speak, You know, in the face of the uncertainty? Jason, do you wanna lead us off on this one?
1: Sure, happy to. Um, I think the short answer is that there's one thing that all bear markets have in common throughout history, you can go back over 40 years, 70 years, 120 years. And that one thing that they have in common is that they eventually end. All bear markets have been defeated eventually by a change in the business cycle, by rising corporate profitability, by stocks becoming too cheap relative to their intrinsic value over the long run, and we start a new cycle again. So despite the fact that bear markets can be extremely challenging to live through there's a psychological cost to owning equities because you know the additional return you get from owning equities over cash over bonds over other asset classes doesn't come without a cost it's not free and the cost is the is the mental torment that this kind of volatility in these bear markets can uh, thrust upon us Um, however uh, the good news is is that owning good companies well diversified and thinking and acting long-term through the lens that this bear market will eventually end, this too shall pass, has been a winning strategy for as long as markets have been around. Optimism has been a winning strategy. So while we recognize that this is not fun and bear markets can be stressful, um, we continue to believe that the U.S. economy and that the companies and investments we own on your behalf will be dynamic and grow in the years ahead. So you know, I think the way that we think about that balance between the business cycle and bear markets and recessions um, is that the summers are long and the winters are short. We're currently in a winter. It feels like it's never going to end, but at some point it will.
3: Thanks, Jason. That, that is very helpful. Another aspect that I like to look at with regard to why do I stay invested for the long term is that if I've done my asset allocation right, I have less volatile assets available to me in the short term. And really what I'm investing for is the long term. And the price of, as Jason, you just highlighted, the price of the better returns over the long term is accepting the reality of the marketplace, which is painful sometimes. Bear markets are painful, but every one of them to date has ended. Uh, Every one of them to date has uh, resulted in higher stock prices, higher market prices after the fact. And we look at uh, phrases from people like Warren Buffett who say, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets. Well, I don't know if there's blood in the streets, but it's pretty uncomfortable for a lot of investors right now. And I think that's a positive, that's a positive. Or when you look at stocks, it's about the only asset anywhere that people shop for that they'd rather buy when it's expensive and don't want to buy when it's cheap. And our goal is to turn that on its head and buy it when it's less expensive and if if necessary sell it when it's more expensive. Of course, to buy it when it's less expensive is to buy it when you're facing uncertainty. And yet, so far as you highlighted, Jason, that has worked out every time.
0: As Jason says, own good companies. Well, thank you very much. We are about out of time. Um, I wanna say thank you to John and Mike and Jason for being on the panel today and to all of our participants who called in and logged in. Uh, Hopefully you um, learned something new today. I know I did and and got some answers to the questions that you've had and maybe some you didn't know you had before this call. Uh, Please tune in for our car first call of 2023. Uh, We'll be sending out information on one that has it. And just as a reminder, we will be doing these twice a year. This call has been recorded and we will be posting a a link or a a link to the recording on our website. So if you want to listen to this enthralling conversation again or share it with a friend, you'll have the opportunity to in about another day or so we'll have that up for you. And so with that, I hope everyone has a good rest of your day and thanks again for joining us.